So do I do I pause? Do I keep going? Nah, just keep recording, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we just usually take a break to like take a sip of water and I, I think I'm gonna have Corey insert in right here the um music box music from the anime since I've got the soundtrack. Book Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Manga in Your Ears. Uh, the song you just heard there was from the opening of the Pandora Hearts anime, since it's my turn for a takeover for once, not Corey's, and I have decided that I really want to tell the world all about Pandora Hearts. So April and Corey are not going to be joining me for this episode, since I know that neither of them have read the entire series. So I grabbed another fan from the internet who I knew had podcasting experience to come chat with me about it. Dee, could you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, sure. Uh, hi, I am Dee. I am the managing editor at Anime Feminist. Um, I also sometimes write articles and co-host the Annie Femme podcast, Chatty AF. Uh, you can find all my writings on my blog, The Jose Next Door, and you can also hang out with me on Twitter at Jose Next Door. She's a good person to hang out with on Twitter, guys. You should definitely follow her if you don't already. Oh, thanks. I, I try to I try to keep things fun. Uh, currently, I'm in a Pokemon hole, so... <laughs> If you guys are in, into that, come come hang out with me. Yeah, so like I said, we're going to be talking about Pandora Hearts in this episode. And Pandora Hearts is a roller coaster of a 24-volume series. So what we're going to do here is we're going to have a bit of a low-key spoiler, not very spoilery beginning section, and then we'll dive more into spoilers later. Since this is a series where a lot happens all the time. I know that in anime, it's common to talk about, you know, like a first episode spoiler or talk about only things that happen the first three episodes. But as I was rereading the series, I realized that some of the um, like fundamental building blocks of the series only come up at like the beginning of volume two. And initially I was also thinking, oh, we could just cover up to what the anime covered. But then I realized, oh, that's more than I remembered. And also that's only volume eight. That The anime only covered a third of the series and just, oh boy, there was a lot. For the record, I did like the anime adaptation. I didn't like how it ended, but that was how I got into this series, and I have been a fan of it ever since. Was it the same for you, Dee? No, I, uh, so, um, I used to work in a bookstore way back in the day when Borders still existed, and, um, the Yen Press manga magazine came out way back in the day when manga magazines still existed, too. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> Yeah, um, and I picked up the first few volumes of it just to kind of get a feel for the different series that this new manga imprint was coming out with, because I'd been reading Shoujo Beat, and I really enjoyed their magazine. Um, and I ended up not subscribing to it overall, but there were a couple of series in it that I ended up uh, latching onto, and the one that really hooked me was Pandora Hearts. So I picked it up initially through the first few volumes of the magazine itself, and then when it started getting released in uh, Tonkabon format, I started scooping those up as well. Um, and it it was one that I stuck with even when I was so, so broke in grad school. I was like, no, I'm still going to keep up with Pandora Hearts, dang it. So... Uh, it, it stuck with me through various moves, and uh, yeah, so I've been a fan of it pretty much since 
Yen Press released it stateside. Yeah, I first became aware of the series when the anime adaptation was announced. And so this was way back in the day when one manga was still around. So I went and some scan leaders had started picking up the series. And I read the first chapter and I was like, oh my god, this feels like it was made for me. This gothic fantasy of a whole bunch of mystery. This is great. Yeah. And I was so bummed since Pandora Hearts had actually been originally licensed by Broccoli Books. Um, but Broccoli um, went out of business before they could put the first volume out. Oh, okay. So I remember thinking at the time, oh man, we could have already had a few volumes of this out. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. We caught up to the, the Japanese release eventually anyway, so it kind of worked out all right, I guess. Yeah, and I was going to say that I actually fell off reading it a bit because I was in college and I didn't really have the money, so I felt bad about reading scans and not buying it. Yeah. As I think listeners of this podcast have figured out, this podcast exists partially for the three of us to catch up on our manga backlogs. Excellent. And so... the. This is how I ended up marathoning all of it in under a week. I'd read about half of it before, but this has been an intense week. <laughs> under a week, that has been intense. I uh, I reread it over the course of the last like month, basically. So I tried to spread it out a little bit. In my defense, I meant for this to be longer. I just lost track of time, so <laughs> this was not the plan. <laughs> it happens. But this is actually a series where... Once you get going into it, you really do want to binge. You really do want to keep finding out the mysteries. Uh, one way I like to sell Pandora Hearts people is that imagine a clamp series of all the twists and reveals, but imagine it actually being done well and put together, and then 24 straight volumes of it. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, it's one of those where when I was reading it, because I did, you know, eventually we caught up with the Japanese release, so we were only getting like a volume every eight months or something like that, maybe every six months. Um and you'd pick up the next volume and you couldn't 100% remember every little thing that had happened in the one prior because, again, it's a very busy series. Um, and so I do remember reading it going, I think she set the groundwork for this in an earlier volume, but maybe not. Maybe this is all just kind of getting like pulled together. But then rereading it, um, it actually, it does. It feels like Mochizuki had a, a basic idea and outline from day one and uh, the, like, twists and stuff are foreshadowed um they're still surprising most of the time but um you can you can when you especially when you reread it you can go oh that when they mentioned this here she was setting us up for this thing that happened like three volumes later or something so um it is surprisingly well for, put together for a very like off the wall plot twisty type of series and this is also um, mochizuki's first full series she did a one shot before this which yen press has also put out and Yen Press is also putting out her current series, The Case Study of Vanitas. Yeah. But let me actually give you guys a summary of Pandora Hearts at this point. Good luck. <laughs> well, a summary of the beginning of it anyway. Uh, so the story of Pandora Hearts follows Oz Bezalus, who is this um, sort of isolated, he's grown up being kind of isolated boy of a duke. Um, he's got a younger sister um, named Ada and his best friend named Gilbert, who's also his valet. And that's to the extent of Oz's world. He's been rather sheltered. And so the story starts with his coming of age ceremony. He's 15 years old now, so he's going to be able to finally enter into society. And Oz is a brat. He is definitely a bit of a brat in a very lovable way, just teasing Gilbert relentlessly, causing trouble before this ceremony. But, you know, he's calmed down before the ceremony. He's had a bit of a weird vision in a garden. You know, he found, like, a pocket watch, but, you know, no big deal. Oz is unconcerned with things to a degree where characters mentioned early on, you're not reacting correctly to this. There's something wrong with you. But so he gets to the ceremony, and it seems to be going all right. But then all these mysterious cloaked strangers in red show up, 
you know, and they say, your sin is your very existence. We are throwing you down into the abyss. And oops, somebody just possessed Gilbert, who is now cut down Oz. So Oz is just like falling into this alternate dimension known as the abyss, which is a bit strange for Oz since he had always been told the abyss was this prison that dangerous prisoners had been sent to. But when he wakes up, he finds himself in this sort of twisted wonderland. And there he meets um, a girl. She's technically a chain since the beings of the abyss are chains. They are monstrous creatures usually who lack a lot of reason and understanding. But Alice, this girl he meets down there, has a sense of self, a personality, and if the two of them make a contract together, they can make an, they can have enough power to break out of the abyss and get back into Oz's world where he would much rather be. And so they do that. And once the two of them break out, Oz finds that um, he's now become entangled with this organization in the country called Pandora, who knows the secret of the abyss, or at least they think they know the secret of the abyss. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out nobody knows the secret <laughs> as the story goes on. Yeah, nobody knows anything. <laughs> Uh, they manage chains, and some of the people in there had been trying to break Oz out already, um, since this was quite irregular. And then that's basically the first volume, <laughs> and then we keep going from there. This was a series that was released monthly, so the chapters are very long, very meaty, and I find very satisfying. So is there anything you would add on to that initial summary, or um, do you want to start talking about characters? Yeah, I mean, I guess the only the only thing that should maybe be pointed out early is that uh, there is a time travel element. Oz pops out, and it's only been like two days for him, but it's been 10 years in the real world. Um, so dealing with that uh, is kind of an ongoing uh, thing, because time doesn't exist in the abyss in the way it does in the real world. So that, you know, becomes kind of a, an ongoing plot point in those first couple of us as well. Yeah, since as we find out later in the series, Oz is far from the first person to be thrown into the abyss and then make their way back out of it later on. So... Yeah, it, it's rare, but it does happen, and everyone who has done it appears to be involved in the story, so. Well, I was joking on Twitter the other day, this story reads a little bit like you're coming into the second act of the story, like the first act has happened, it ended in tragedy, quite literally it has ended in tragedy, and now in the second act we've got a newish cast of characters who are connected to the first act and are now trying to unravel what happened. Since one thing Oz finds out more about is that 100 years ago, the former capital of the country... Uh, was involved in some sort of incident. Nobody's quite sure what happened. They just know that everybody there was massacred and then the entire city was dropped into the abyss. So it is no longer the capital. And as he finds out, and as we go along, we find out what exactly was going on and how this is connected to a certain family called the Baskervilles who have um, these connections to the abyss. They can't manipulate it, but they can work with it. And when the story starts out, it sounds rather pretentious, like, oh, who are these people to be judging why some poor young child should just be thrown into this alternate dimension? But as you go along, you discover that the Baskervilles actually know quite a bit more than anybody else. They actually do have special powers and abilities connected to the Abyss. But even they aren't quite sure what happened 100 years ago and why things are going on. Yeah. Like, we discovered that... Gilbert is no longer possessed. Thank God that was only a temporary instant. However, Oz is just sort of like permanently possessed by um, a character from a hundred years ago, one of his distant relatives, who seems to know some things about what's going on, but um, his possessor's soul, Jack, is kind of fragmented, so they're not really able to get a lot of answers out of him. Alice seems like she was probably human at some point, but she's missing all of her memories and also can turn into like this giant bloody black rabbit, so... There are clearly quite a few questions to be answered here early on. Yeah. 
It's uh, it's it's a mystery show, but I think I think the way you point the way you worded it, saying that you know it's kind of like you're coming into the second act of a play. Yeah. Um, but like the characters are like the characters are walking into the second act of a play and then having to figure out what happened in the first act along with the audience. Um, I think is a very smart way to tell this story because so much of it is about how you deal with the things that happened in the past, not just like your own actions, but also, you know, the actions of your ancestors and, you know, moving forward from that and, um, you know, resolving mistakes that you made or that somebody else made um, and the the temptation to like run away from them, but needing to address them is all very kind of wrapped up in the story itself. So um, the elements of like time travel aren't just like cool devices. They sort of feed into, you know, everything the story is kind of trying to touch on anyway. Yeah. And I think if the story had been told chronologically instead, where we had started about a hundred years ago and figured out what was going down in this former capital, I think that the emotional impact by the end of the story would have still been about the same, but we would have lost this juicy mystery of what, was going on what are with all these twists you know why does did was anybody born in this time like was anybody <laughs> is there a single person in this cast who hasn't been either cast into the abyss and or had their time stopped yeah which is just a side effect of contracting of chains it turns out which is why people are able to mislead oz at first into not realizing 10 years have passed since he's only dealing with people who look the same for the past 10 years yeah well and gil who's hiding his uh identity that that's only through like volume two so i don't feel like that's a spoiler to say um it's also extremely obvious that it's him so it was so fun in the anime where um, viewers who had not read the manga were trying to figure that out they're like there's a connection here but i'm not sure what was their time travel that was a very fun few episodes yeah that's true yeah, I have seen the anime. Um, I watched it after the fact, and I got a friend into the manga via the anime. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a really good voice cast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a that was a fun show. With it, but yeah, no, I could see that being like as you're as you're watching in real time, being like, what? <laughs> that could have been a fun one to watch week to week for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I think um, part of the reason the story does have such emotional half to it by the end is that it's a story where it's a lot about the relationships between characters. Mm, absolutely. Very little romance in here, honestly. Like, a couple of characters have crushes on each other, like, to a mild extent, but romance is never, like, the stated end goal or even, like, a driving factor for most of the series. Yeah. Okay, could probably make an argument that Duke Barma is only doing some things because he actually likes one of the other um, duchesses. <laughs> Like, maybe that is the one thing keeping him from just being totally amoral. But I, other than that, it's a lot more about friendships, lots of, like, master-servant relationships. Yeah, yeah. In a non-creepy way, in a consensual fine way. But this is also one of the ways the story connects itself together. It has a lot of relationships which mirror relationships in the past, which just makes it all the more exquisitely painful when stuff starts to really go to hell by the end of the series. Yeah, it's it's very I mean, you know, um I think the the you know, the kind of wild plot twists and the the magic in the world and everything um are are well done and can definitely kind of hook you into the next volume, but it's at its core a very character-driven story about, you know, people who react to the other people around them and how they've been treated and what their relationships are. Um and it's really interested in those bonds um, or those chains if you want to use the the language of the story like I think that's an intentional metaphor there um, that that Mochizuki touches on sometimes Um, but yeah so you get really you get really tangled up in everyone's relationships and you're right you know it's not it's not concerned with romance but 
I think I would still, I think I would refer to it as a love story. Does that make sense? Like not a romance necessarily, but it's very much a story about these characters that cared, that love each other. Like they care deeply for each other. And I've always been re-fascinated by the way the relationships, so many of the relationships in the story kind of occupy this place where you're not really sure what to call it. You just know that they mean the world to each other. Um, And I appreciate that quite a bit, actually. Yeah, maybe we could call them like dangerously dependent relationships or something. Sometimes they are, yeah. Yeah, as we learn more about the tragedy of Sibliere, um, that's, I probably mispronounced that word, but that's the name for um, what happened 100 years ago. It was sort of motivated by one person not being able to let go of another person in a very possessive sort of way. Oh, yeah, the story like, oh, totally. Yeah, and I think that um, a lot of the the worst and best things that happen in the story happen because of somebody's, you know, like deep emotions for somebody else. Um, and I think that it's really, again, something I, looking back at it this, this time through, um, I think the story is very concerned with the idea of like healthy versus unhealthy expressions of love. Um, and the characters will kind of argue about it sometimes too. Um, there's a line in, it's in one of the early volumes where um, break is, I think, he is warning Oz, like, be careful not to use the idea of, like, doing it for someone else as an excuse to do terrible things. Um, and then it, like, flashes to Vincent, and we get more into Vincent's story and how he's doing a lot of terrible things for the sake of his brother, um, is how he words it. Um, so, yeah, I think I like the way the story kind of engages with this idea of love as this force that can, you know, cause horrible tragedies and events, but can also, you know, be this this very affirming power that uh, gives a lot of the characters, you know, extra strength to kind of figure out, you know, what they want to do and how they want to help each other and um, push each other to be, you know, better. It's kind of lovely. The story has a lot of feelings about the nature of self-sacrifice, and it overall is not very much in the favor of self-sacrifice. There's a really strong moment relatively early on in the series between Oz and... Um, a member of one of the other big ducal families, um, Elliot. And uh, Elliot is like, why do you keep self-sacrificing yourself? I've only met you like five minutes ago and you're already telling me to run. You'll hold off these people while you've been clearly beaten up and are in no position for a fight. You know, why are you doing this? What drives you so much? And it really works there since Elliot and Oz are really shown um, for a time to be almost in some ways foils or images of each other. Uh, they make each other better a lot. And they both have very similar circumstances being from Dougal families. They have valets with mysterious or- origins and other similarities. Um, I'm almost a little surprised that Mochizuki didn't do more with that one in the end. But yeah, the series has a lot to say about self-sacrifice. And again, especially when it comes to Oz, even in the first volume when he is in the abyss and he's meeting Alice and he's chatting with her, but he's gotten kind of distracted because there's a tin of cookies right there and he's hungry. Alice is like, okay, you're human. You are not freaking out here. You are in like literally an alternate dimension with things trying to kill you. Like someone just stabbed you out there. Like, why are you not freaking out? Oz is just like, well, that's just kind of what I do. And everyone is like, there's something not wrong, not normal with this child. What is wrong? Yeah. Yeah, Oz's ability to just kind of roll with everything and just accept everything, no matter how terrible it is, um, initially kind of seems like it's going to be a strength. And then as the show goes, and then as the series goes on, you realize, oh, no, no, this is being set up as like a pretty significant um, uh, weakness with his character and, you know, shows his kind of lack of of regard for himself. Uh, Yeah, I think the series, I think it straddles a really careful line um, with with Oz kind of in the forefront and then his arguments with Elliot um, about 
self-sacrifice to the point of not caring about yourself at all versus, you know, being willing to maybe sacrifice some things for the sake of others or for the sake of something broader than yourself, but to still, you know, not to the point where you're like destroying yourself in the process. Does that make sense? And it's hard to get into without like really getting into spoilers later in the series, but there are there are characters who do, you know, who who do exhibit like kind of heroic moments of self-sacrifice later in the series, but it's played in very much this sense of like they don't do it as easily as Oz does it in the early volumes. It's it's something they have to really kind of fight with and struggle with and figure out well what is what is the solution that I want to have happen. Um, and sometimes the answer is yeah yeah I'll give up you know this or that for this for to make sure that these other people are safe. Um, and I think the series frames that as being like ultimately a healthy a good action because they've taken time to really consider it um, and not just like Oz does early on just you know immediately put everybody else first despite him, you know, probably dying if, if he goes that route. Shoot, I was just thinking you started talking about maybe sacrificing parts of yourself, and I was thinking, oh, damn, this really is a clamp series. We've got people losing eyes. We've got people losing arms. Just, oh, no. <laughs> oh, yeah. But with that in mind, unless you have anything else you want to discuss about the characters, let's take a quick break and then come back um, and just go whole hog into the spoilers for this series, because, oh, boy, guys, so many feels. C- come for the plot twist. Stay for the characters. <laughs> everybody we're back and ah i'm not actually even sure where to start with the spoilers just um man everyone really is from the past or has been like possessed or just there is so much going on in these characters backstories there is just so much yeah it, it it really is a series that you know everything that happened previously informs what's been going on in the present and um it's one of those it kind of reminds me of Escaflone where I just finished reading it over the course of the last month and I'm already a little bit fuzzy on the plot points uh because there's so many of them and at the end of the day it only kind of matters because what really matters is the emotions (laughs) um is how much these characters love each other and how sad you are when they start dying um so Although Pandora Hearts has relatively few character deaths, honestly. I think by the end, uh, Break is dead. Elliot is dead. I honestly thought they would try to bring Elliot back in some way, but they didn't. But that that's about it. Like, yeah. like Oz and Alice are sort of like, we're going to come back in 100 years because our bodies literally can't hold up anymore, but... Well, presumably everybody who died will come back in 100 years, um, because that's just the series has the reincarnation cycle built into it. Mm -hmm. But I mean, if you want to get technical, by the end of the series, everybody except Gil dies. (laughs) Um, Leo might still be alive, since I got the impression it's like 100 years in the future. So Leo might still be alive, or some of the other Baskervilles. Yeah, and there's probably, I'm sure there's a Glenn somewhere out there. Um, Whether it's not Leo, it's, you know, so some part of Leo is probably still alive, but... Yeah, it uh but as far as like yeah, as far as like dramatic character deaths within the moment, it there's relatively um but I do kind of count Alice and Oz at the end as well as part of that. Um because it's such an emotional moment where Gil has to say goodbye to the two people he loves so much. Um I love that little trio at the core of the story. Yeah, they are so much fun and they get together 
get along together really well as the story goes on. Like in the beginning, there's all sorts of, you know, little tits for tats between Alice and Gil, but they, they kind of get into a rhythm by the end. And I remember there's one moment um, in like the second half of the series where Leo has sort of snuck up on Oz and the gang. They're hanging out and he's like, oh, I see you guys don't have your guards from Pandora today. And Oz is like, well, we've kind of realized by this point that if they ever let us out without guards, we're being used as bait. So we just decide to, you know, enjoy the day until something happens. So it's like, oh, you poor cynical child by this point. I mean, you are totally right. <laughs> he is right. And everyone at Pandora, you know, probably knew that Oz was going to figure this out. But Oz is just like, whatever, we're just going to... It's going to enjoy the day until something happens. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oz is, Oz is a very sharp, he's, he's a very kind of unique protagonist, I think, in that he sort of seems like he has this happy-go-lucky attitude, but then you find out a lot of it is because he has no self-worth. Um, and then he kind of can come across as being, you know, sort of a, sort of a shonen protagonist, like doofus character, but he's actually very clever and sharp and picks up on things. Um, and is just willing to kind of go with it sometimes. Um, yeah, I appreciate him as a main character in the way, like you were saying, the way the all of the characters' like relationships and they themselves grow throughout this is really good. Um, yeah, because I remember in the very beginning of the series, you know, Break is looking at Oz and he's like, who are you? Where are you? And it's like, oh, that's rude, Break. And then later on in the series, you're like, oh no, he was probably picking up on the fact that Oz is not a normal child in any sense of the term. And they read each other, they read each other really well. Um, like, they're, they can both kind of see through each other's uh, like facades um which like yeah i think it makes their relationship really really interesting and fun uh, throughout the story because there's kind of this they get they get irritated at each other because of it but at the same time i think they understand each other better than they maybe want to admit uh which i appreciate a lot yeah because i remember in the very beginning of the series you no know, break is looking at oz and he's like who are you where are you and it's like oh that's rude break and then later on in the series you're like oh no he was probably picking up on the fact that Oz is not a child in any sense of the term. Yeah, and Oz kind of, um, I guess, kind of disassociates in those early volumes as sort of a way to see it, as he's always just a little bit removed from the situation emotionally because he's sort of proactively trying to keep himself from getting hurt uh, because of his horrible, horrible father. Um, and so, you know, his willingness over the course of the story to be willing to make those, you know, deeper, messier connections with other people and open himself up to uh, being hurt, but also to, you know, saying what he wants and fighting for that uh, is makes for a really nice kind of central, which a lot of the characters follow, you know, kind of similar paths, I think, is figuring out what they want to do to help each other um, as they with this again, progressively bonkers and broken world that they're unraveling. And quite literally, because it turns out, you know, that 100 years ago, Jack was like, okay, I'm still really mad at the previous current Glenn. At at this point, it's kind of hard to tell um, for killing his sister, who was this person who showed me light in my life and sort of kept me going. Very dependent sort of way. Very unhealthy. Yeah. (laughs) Very unhealthy. Um, I'm just going to totally destroy everything. And that involves like literally cutting apart the chains that hold the world together and dropping the world into this abyss. And so, yeah, things are very literally falling apart by the end of the series. Like at some point I was like, I I joke about this being gothic fantasy, but this may end in tragedy. Like it's going to be real hard for things to get put back together, which again is part of the reason why I'm surprised that death count was so low by the end of the series. It's like, wow, almost everybody made it out. We forgot about Oscar. I can't believe I forgot about Oscar. Oscar. I cried when Oscar died, and I forgot to mention that he died, too. Um, oh, I, w- I, I was definitely expecting, like, once he broke out that camera, it's like, oh, you're numbered. 
<laughs> oh, I knew he was doomed, um, but it's, it still was emotional when it happened, especially the second time through. I was like, oh no, oh no, my feeling. Um, but yeah, the they managed to, the ending is, well, I it's Pandora Hearts. It's about the hope at the center of all the, all the tragedy. Um, and I think the series, you know, is true to that start to finish. Like as bad as things get, there's always these, these lights that the characters are able to latch onto, usually from each other. Um, and so I think the ending kind of uh, embodies that in that it's not a perfect ending. Gil has to wait a hundred years to meet back up with, uh, you know, his, his favorite people and, um, you know, loses a lot of people along the way. Um, Raymond Sharon get married, I guess, because they like, they're just friends. I can't imagine that relationship is romantic at all. Yeah, I kind of cocked my head at that. And I was like, I guess these, it's because they're the only two people who would ever understand what the other has gone through just with. Absolutely. Yeah. All of the craziness. And that's just the most important connection they can make. But and also because both of them are just like equally heartbroken over break stuff, like possibly in a romantic sense for both of them honestly yeah i was like also they were they both loved break so they have that as a touchstone point i I did respect mochizuki for never quite going romantic with sharon and break just since there's like at least 60 60 year age difference at some point just who knows what it actually is but I, i respected her for not actually going romantic just keeping that strictly like protective found siblings basically well and and I don't think there's there's never a moment where I thought Brake saw her as anything but uh, like a younger sister or um, or that that kind of valet servant relationship that speckles the entire story. Um, Sharon had a crush on Brake, definitely. <laughs> Who doesn't have a crush on Brake? Let's be honest. Seems to just run in the reins. We're family. <laughs> um, everybody has a crush on Brake, but. But no, I liked the way she handled. Um, again, the re- the relationships in the story are kind of nebulous because I think that I think that as many hints as there are that Sharon has a crush on Brake, there's just as many that Gilbert has a crush on Oz. Um, you know what I mean? Like the way she writes all the different relationships. But then there's also that whole Oz was like semi brainwashed previously into like protecting his master at all costs. So it's like, hmm, there's some of that coming through too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which I think is why, you know, kind of the the end where Gil has to kind of make a choice between these two masters that he's sworn to follow his whole life. And, you know, like, I mean, cuts off his arm to make the choice. Like, he makes this choice in dramatic fashion. Um, and the choice isn't just like a, well, I swore fealty to him. It's no, no, this is the person I care about. This is my friend. And I would argue the person I'm in love with. Um, and I... This is this is who I want to you know be be there for and and fight with um, and so again I think a lot of the story is about those kind of personal choices and breaking free from some of the uh, chains haha <laughs> how many times am I going to make that joke this episode I mean especially considering it's called break I remember in the scans originally people were localizing his name as Blake and we were all like break why and we're like well he is kind of broken I guess so. I guess it's working there. He is kind of broken. God, I love Break. Um, sprinting towards his death the entire series, and I was still devastated when it happened. Um, I have there's a particular archetype of character who is this kind of happy-go-lucky on the outside, but then actually has like a really intense tragic past. Um, but is pushed through it. You mean the entire cast? I mean, it is pretty much the entire cast. But Break, I think, embodies it in a lot of in a lot of ways that I really enjoy. Um, I like the way that anytime he's kind of talking to them, he's he's kind of a, a trash bag, especially in the early going. Like he's he's sort of a troll. 
Um, and he talks about like, yeah, no, I'm just using you guys, your bait. Like he's just honest about it. Um, but then anytime things get really serious, he shows up and rescues everybody. Like he's not going to actually let them get severely hurt. Yeah. I was just thinking about how trolly he is in the beginning where like they, they, we never discuss it, but he somehow has this ability to just like pop out a cabinet and then like vanish back into them and never show up again. That's not the power of his chain. I don't know what's going on. I'm just rolling with it. He's a magician. Um, that's my guess. He makes all those sweets disappear. So um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in the early ep- in the early volumes that I can't decide if it was something Mochizuki threw in there because she thought it would like get more readers and it just fell off as the story became you know more more character driven and intense, um, or if it was just there to be kind of silly. Because like there's other things like Vincent and Lottie come across as like right on the edge of sexually assaulting people a few times in those early volumes. And that just falls away completely as the series goes. Like that, that edge of like sexual menace um, just disappears. Um, so, and some of Break's like little mannerisms early on are in that same vein where they kind of like Emily sort of just vanishes after the first few volumes. Uh, so I don't know if that was Mochizuki deciding I don't actually need these little gimmicks in the story. I'm just going to focus on writing them more like um, you know more sympathetic or if it's supposed to be the fact that, you know, everybody's kind of wearing a mask in the early going and as those fall away, so do the the traits that kind of define those those masks that were if that makes any sense at all. Oh no, that's what I'd been thinking about break the whole time. Also, once he loses his vision, I figure that whatever tricks he's pulling off to just like magically vanish rooms weren't working as well, so that's probably part of the reason why he stopped doing it. He he is still incredibly dangerous with no eyesight. <laughs> oh, he is. He's got it's it's right on the edge of that like daredevil thing where it's like he's blind but he's it has no effect on his life so what difference does it make but i do appreciate that mochizuki goes no he's got like the i can sense bloodlust thing that happens in anime all the time um sure okay fine um but they also make the point of like and and he says like i can see he said he can see some light he just can't see like details um so he could see shadows of people around him we the assumption i was making um, but I do like that she makes a point of being like, well, no, but he can't read anymore. Um, so Rame's going to have to, you know, help cover for his paperwork. Rame is such a good... Um, and, you know, there's the moments where, like, if he's not paying attention, like, Gilbert thwacks him on the side of the head, uh, catches him completely off guard. He he hears voice... He, he doesn't know what's going on until he hears a voice above him. Things like that. Um, I think she does a pretty good job of, of writing it in a way that's realistic for the world that this story exists in where you can sense bloodlust. <laughs> I mean, this is also where somebody's body got cut up into five parts and then were like used as like magical ceiling stone. Like there's clearly more magic going than the abyss, or perhaps this is like another the abyss's power asserts itself in the world that just doesn't get really touched on in the story. But yeah, she definitely indulges in the fact that it's a fantasy, so more things go. Yeah, talking about the abyss, I was surprised at just how sympathetic I found the Baskervilles um, once I read through the entire series. Since you find out that all of them are like quite literally this found family of people have an actual connection to the abyss and are deeply loyal to each other. And I really do have to wonder why Lottie seems to have gone so crazy since when we see her a hundred years ago, she seems to be fairly normal. But in the meantime, like, I don't know, I, I guess getting locked away in the abyss for like 96 years just messed her up and made her like a little more one dimensional. Which made me a little sad. I felt I felt like Mochizuki did walk back her like sexual predator depravedness as the series went on, went on, especially as we start finding out more and more about what's going on here. You know, why is everybody trying to drop Oz into the abyss? Oh, Oz has the power to like end the world. Oh, okay, yeah, you don't want that lying around. So, yeah, I think Lottie is one of the one of the weaker arcs because there's not a clear 
there's not a clear path from the Lottie we see when the story first begins to the Lottie that we end up with, who, like you said, is is a much more uh, sympathetic, uh, more well-rounded character. She doesn't just come across as, um, I don't know, a sexual predator, I guess. Like, in that first volume, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of creeping on Oz. Uh, the first volume she appears in, I mean. Um, and I don't know if, again, if that was Mochizuki-like, kind of having fun with the pulpier elements of the story early on and then going no 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 wait I want them to be more human characters so I'm gonna just pull back from that entirely um or if we're supposed to read like you said into the idea of like getting thrown into the abyss and being ordered to kill all those people without knowing why um losing Glenn if all of that just like kind of snapped her early on and so she sort of you know took on this this more menacing role to kind of play the villain that she thought Glenn wanted her to be um I don't mind that reading of it. I'm just not 100% sure it's built into the story itself. Because um, at least like with Vincent, like you get a lot of the Vincent being kind of a creeper early. And then as you learn more about him, it makes sense why he's acting the way he is. Um, I think there's, I think Lottie, we're missing some of that in the story. In a story that's very good at developing its characters and showing us how they got from one to the next. Yeah, as we find as we go along, Vincent was not exactly the victim of like a cycle of abuse just because... He sort of like accidentally semi ended that part of the world before it could get to that point. But the kid was like five or so when he accidentally semi ends the world to try and save his big brother as he thinks that's what he needs to do, which does make him more sympathetic. But he's really creepy in the early chapters, just cutting things up and everything. I, I kind of wish his chapters with Echo had come much earlier since that came at like the very end and I thought really helped sort of bridge between the early flashbacks we get of him and Gil being these cute little kids and then the present day where Vincent has plans he will use anybody to achieve those plans and guess what he's also a death seeker he also just really wants to like erase his existence entirely yeah Vincent is he's one of those characters I don't particularly like because I think a lot of the stuff he does in the early episode in the early chapters is heinous enough that it's it's hard for me to it's one of those like to to quote Brooklyn Nine-Nine cool motive still murder kind of thing um but I do have a lot of sympathy for him because he was you know abused and ostracized from a very young from basically birth um and then he gets used by um Jack and uh the Lady Barma whose name I can't remember um thank you Miranda um they use him to, you know, open this gate and he realizes, and then he's like, oh, this is my fault. All these people are dead because of me. Um, and he didn't know that was what, he didn't know that's what they were going to do. Like he had no idea. He's just this little kid. Um, and so I can totally see how his mindset from there would go, oh, I'm, I'm awful. If I just erase myself from existence, then none of these bad things would have happened. So it doesn't matter what I do from here on out because everything I'm doing is in service of, it won't have happened because I won't have existed. Um, and I think once you get to that that concept of him being, um, again, horribly traumatized and suicidal, he becomes a much, um, he becomes a character you can feel bad for even if you can't excuse everything he did, which is why I think he doesn't get like a 100% happy ending. Like he doesn't get to be with Ada. He ends up traveling the world. Um, he, like, he and Gil are sort of together, but they like have to separate a lot. Um, I think that was maybe Mochizuki going, no, no, you still kind of have to pay for, you still did some really bad stuff, um, but you can, you can make up for it. There's things you can do to kind of move forward instead of, instead of just erasing it, you know? Yeah. And the impression I got at the end was that in his very last journeys, he may have actually been looking for odds analysis, um, reincarnations. Oh, totally. Yeah. 
yeah, since Oz mentions, you know, in like the page and a half, and we see it's like, hey, I don't remember everything yet, but Vincent said this happens sometimes, so. Yeah, Vincent was traveling the world so he could find, so he could find Oz and Alice's reincarnated forms for his brother, which is about the sweetest thing he could have done. Um, so yeah, I think by the end, I, by the end, uh, Mochizuki had sold me on Vincent, but uh, it took a while because boy, he sucks in the early going. Yeah, I feel like in some way she reused some of the same ideas with Leo, just in a much more effective way, since Leo also feels horribly guilty for, again, basically his entire existence, and in very, very accidentally causing Elliot to become the headhunter and die because of it. Man, when I was rereading the series, I had a crazy theory at first that Elliot may have actually been a Vesalus, and I'm so mad that didn't happen. But I mean, there there were enough clues there. I thought, oh, maybe that's where the actual quote unquote Oz was. You know, maybe they just switched these babies at birth or something. But nope, actually dead. Yeah, I I thought Elliot was going to be Glenn. Like I knew there was going to be a Glenn and I was just dead convinced it was Elliot. And then it was like, no plot twist. Oh, yeah, they were hinting at it so hard. Yeah. Oh, poor Elliot. Yeah, very, very obvious misdirection. I remember those were some of the last chapters I was reading as the series was coming out. And I was like, really? Like, I feel like we're losing it a bit. But it's funny because when I was rereading the series, I realized they mentioned the headhunter in like volume one or volume two. Like it comes up as an aside there. I was like, wow, she actually planned this part. Yeah, she had, again, it's it's a fun one to reread because a lot of stuff that you maybe just kind of glossed over your first time reading it because you weren't looking for it. When you read it through a second time, you're like, oh, that happens like six volumes down the road and she was already laying the groundwork for it. Um, so I do appreciate that. I think, I think the only, the only thing that really comes out of left field is that um, I guess there are storyteller gods. Yeah. Yeah. The whole jury thing. It's like alternate dimensions. And it's like, on the one hand, this sort of works, but. What do you think they're there for? Because to me, they show up for a chapter. And if that chat, if they did not exist, the story would remain the same. Yeah, like that old lady does exist in an earlier chapter. She's just sort of the one. I guess in the way they sort of exist as the one to incite everything. Since if you think about it, it's these jury who are worried that these children of ill omen actually have the same powers they do, basically. And so could you serve them? And so they don't want to lose it. So that's why they keep telling the clients, hey, if you've got a red-eyed sibling, you need to throw them into the depths of hell, basically. So I guess maybe there? Yeah, that was, that was the one thing I... I like about their insertion is it changes because up to that point the you know the the concept of like the child of ill omen um is presented as no they actually do cause it's not their fault but they actually do cause like devastation and troubles because of this their connection to the abyss um and then you get to that chapter which so it which is kind of like it's kind of like stories um what's a good example of this like stories that try to use like oh did you ever play the dragon age games i apologize to listeners who haven't played the dragon age games but that's my best example right now i have not i just know that everybody wants to smooch at least one of the characters in there well no that's legit um but no so one of the ideas that's in this and this is a good example and i think i can sort of expand from here and explain to folks who even haven't played the games um mages are kind of like an oppressed class um they're kept in towers and tightly controlled and like they have they have like people who watch them and part of the conflict story there is like the mages trying to like rise up from their oppressors and like seek their own independence but they actually are super dangerous and can like go berserk and kill tons and tons of people sort of by accident so it undercuts this like so it's one of those stories that's trying to do like an oppression metaphor with fantasy but undercuts their point by like 
making the characters legitimately threatening because like actual oppression in, in the real world there it people are just people you know and they and and oppressors like come up with these ideas with these reasons they're dangerous even when they're not kind of thing um so a lot of fantasy undercuts that so by having mochizuki circle it back around to no 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 it's not that they're legitimately dangerous is that they threaten the ruling power and so the ruling power made up these myths about them being dangerous is actually pretty genius on Mochizuki's part like that's a pretty uh, solid understanding of how oppressive regimes happen so it comes out of left field and it's only one chapter but that is the one thing about it that I, I think is pretty great is how it reorients our understanding of the children of ill omen yeah, Mochizuki has definitely realized the same thing her readers recognize, which is that if you guys just weren't murdering some people at the very beginning, this all would have happened, wouldn't have happened. If you guys hadn't murdered Lacey, we, like, honestly, that would have solved everything. Everything would have progressed normally. Odds would still be an adorable stuffed animal, probably. You know, Gil would have become the next Glenn. Although, I don't know how Gil would have had, like, fortitude to be Glenn, honestly, since he's such a crybaby. And I mean, kind of. I mean, he does, like, quote-unquote, man up later on as it goes. He he gains more resolve, but still, he's such a crybaby for so long. (laughs) I I love Gil because I I love Pand- um, Oh, I love him too, but- (laughs) Well, and and just the series in general, I really like- There's a particular style of shonen, and a lot of them run in the Gongon magazines, which is what this one did, um, that is- it's badasses with feelings. Um, it's, I mean, which is, it's a short, it's, you know, shorthand for it, but that's, that's kind of the, I think Sayuki sort of popularized it. And then a lot of creators have, have bounced off of that since then. Um, and it's, I mean, you said he kind of like mans up, but to me, like he definitely gains more resolve and a better sense of what he wants in his, and his own identity instead of just, you know, I live for somebody else. Um, but he continues to be a very emotional character who, you know, cries easily. And I think a lot of the characters are, I think those, I think, you know, Oz is a character who cry easily and Alice cries easily. Like it's not, it's the boys and the girls alike. Um, and you'll have these really nice, the best moments in the story, I think are these moments of emotional, um, honesty and, uh, what's the word? Vulnerability. And I think the series does a good job of showing how those are the moments that like connect you to other people and, um, make you human. They don't make you, um, and I really appreciate that. Like, God, Break's death scene is, I sobbed a little bit this time. Um, and then they keep dragging his body back so they could bring it back, I'm assuming, for a proper funeral at the end. And it's like, oh, man. Yes. But he has that moment where he's like, you know, I did what I could. I passed on my quest to somebody else. It's fine. I'm happy with this. And then Raymond Sharon show up and he's like, damn it, I actually don't want to die. Uh, I would like to stay here with these people. And he's, I, I can't remember his exact last lines, but it's something to the effect of like, I was all ready to have like a cool finish, but now you guys are here and I'm just sad that I have to say goodbye to you. And um, it's such, again, it's just such a good moment of emotional honesty for these characters. Um, and I think Mochizuki just nails the the bonds that have built between them and how, you know, um, how hard this is for them, even if it's kind of what needed to happen um, for everyone to, you know, allow things to, to, to move forward. Um, it's, it's still sad and that's okay. Yeah, I tend to not get reading stories or watching movies, just a thing, but I came real dang close at the end of this year. Like, Echo's ending also just felt tragic to me, since when you see her as a side character, it seems like, you know, she may have some things going on, right? She seems to be finding some independence and determination, and clearly there is something going on with her 
not just because she's with Vincent, which is a good sign of that, but also just because of, you know, her action. But then you find her whole story where it's a case of the contractor and change is being so twisted together since she's sort of failure as a basker. And it's like, oh, honey, I, I hope you have a good reincarnation in 100 years. You definitely deserve a better shot this time around. Yeah. Um, yeah, Echo is... She's another, again, I, I, so many of the characters, it kind of comes down to this idea of figuring out who, who the person I consider I is, you know, because Oz doesn't really think of it as a person. Echo doesn't really think of herself as a person for a good portion of the story. And in truth, both of them are not actually humans, it turns out. So, Well, they're not humans, but they're people. Um, and, you know, their experiences with others and the, and the bonds they form there kind of help them figure out oh, I do want to be a part of this world. I do want to. And it, same thing with Break. Like, you know, he loses everything, screws up real, real bad, kills a lot of people for, it turns out, nothing, and um, comes back and is able to kind of find another future and kind of a different uh, identity almost because, you know, Break is not Kevin um, through these through these uh, different relationships and the experiences that come from them and, and kind of figuring out who you are in relation to the world around you. I guess is how I would word it. Um, but it, it's woven into like everybody's stories and it's, it's everyone's is a little bit different and they're all really beautifully done. I think by the end of the story. Yeah. I am really impressed how large the cast got in the end and yet characters feel um, like expixies of each other, clones, you know, anything like that. And I've been reading some of her series, Thanitas, which also has a growing cast. And again, you see similarities between characters like, Mochizuki seems to really enjoy writing bratty characters. She seems to just really love this. But nobody's identical, which is hard to do. And she's still so young, relatively, in her writing career that it's really impressive. And I hope she keeps going. Yeah, she does a really good job of of distinct characters that still kind of like echo and bounce off each other. Like we were talking about how Break and Oz have some similarities. Um, or Oz and Echo have some similarities. Um, and so they're able to kind of see each other in one another. Um, and kind of push each other in really unique ways. So the way she creates the differences between the different characters and then the similarities um, is it leads to some excellent interactions and like a, a, a diverse cast of people and then also a diverse cast of relationships too between them, um, which makes them extremely fun to watch. Yeah, and speaking, there was one more thing I had to touch on with the series, and it's the art, and that the art starts out a little stiff, a little like she's just mimicking something else, but by the end, it just it's really pretty art. I'd forgotten how many pages there must have been in this series, and seeing just how many color pages there were the covers, and man, I need to track down that art book. I regret not getting it. Oh, me too. Um, no, Mochizuki's arc is beautiful. I noticed when I was reading, when you start, novels have like blank backgrounds, you know, she's kind of getting away with not drawing backgrounds whenever she can. And then she progresses to using like basic backgrounds and screen tones. But then by the time you get to the end of the series, she has just got whole hog, very ambitious scenery and everything. It's like, it's like her art just seems so much more well-defined, their body and movement to the characters. And throughout, she does a lot of like, fun little drawings in the background. Like the characters are often having asides to each other in the middle of conversations or making silly faces. And she breaks the fourth wall a couple of times. Like there's this one, Isla Yura, I think. And like he shows up for a couple of chapters. It's good. He's awful. Um, but just keeps popping up in the background of panels. And Oz is like, why do you keep showing up in the backgrounds of panels? And I like looked at the previous page and I'm like, oh gosh, she did do that. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, Mochizuki has, in addition to, I mean, we've talked a lot about, you know, how the story is like really emotionally sincere and there's a lot of plot twists, but it also has a very good sense of humor, which is something I 
very much crave in any of my like you know big anime manga like messy earnest epics they usually have a good sense of humor too like i put for me pandora hearts is kind of on that same level as like a story like shigiyugi or full metal alchemist or um currently running noragami oh yeah i can i can see with noragami now that you mention it yeah it's able to it's able to very seamlessly transition from like these kind of silly care like everyone just kind of being silly and having a good time to you know these more like dramatic life life-changing uh events um and yeah the that the difference between like the the little intimate moments and the more grand epic stuff um it's woven together really well and there's these perfect moments of levity um i love her little bonus uh the little bonus comics that she does in between volumes or like in between chapters uh, do a really good job of fleshing out some of the characters. Like I think Rame, I find Rame extremely endearing and a lot of it comes from the little bonus chapter she does of like, here's stuff that's been going on in the last 10 years and how like Rame and Brake became friends or how, you know, Gilbert got kind of integrated into their group. Um, they, it, it adds a, they're cute and funny and like a nice little breather from whatever, you know, ridiculous intense thing is happening in the story um but they also do a really good job of making you love the character more which is what humor humor is the quickest way to endear people to characters so um it's very it's very good storytelling that she has a good sense of humor and is willing to insert that into the story and let let them have fun even even amidst all this potential tragedy Although I do remember there was one volume at the end where emotional volume, she's like, no, what to draw for the, for the end of this. I didn't know what comic to do. We're just not going to have it this time. Yes, she got sad at the end too. And I was like, I'm glad. I'm glad I'm not the only one. Yeah, and that mixture of drama is something that's much easier. Since I remember when Metal Alchemist Brotherhood adaptation came, it included more of the comedy than President. But it's just kind of harder and animating things to switch back and tone so quickly. You've got music and all these additional cues to switch around. But in the manga, it's so much easier just to slip in a little panel of someone making a silly joke in between. And I feel like Mochizuki did that well. Also, I just love everybody's outfits. Like, some of them are impractical, but I really like a lot of the fancier ones. Like, how she draws the women in suits and just, like, ah, oh, I just adore this so much. This is just such my aesthetic. I want, I'm not much of a cosplayer. I want to cosplay as basically everybody <laughs> in this series. But especially... I have cosplayed as Echo before, but it was not a good cosplay. I was gonna say Echo is one where I, I always looked at her costume and went, "I want to wear that." Echo and Break. I like their I like their big floppy sleeves an awful lot. So the thing you discover of Echo's costume, though, is that wow, it is a short skirt. Shorts underneath that are a must. <laughs> it is. I always like to. I assumed she had shorts underneath. I was like, I'm sure there's shorts under there. There have to be. It's way too short. Yeah, I've definitely thought about recosplaying from this again now that I can sewing skills. And just rereading this has reignited all of my passion for the series. Like, when I started rereading this, I was like, I remember this grabbed me so much when I first did. Would this still grab me now? And then I'm like binging and I'm like, oh, fuck, it's midnight. I have work. Oh, God. <laughs> I regret this, and yet I don't at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, I got sucked right back in, and I've always been like, one of these days I'm going to write about Pandora Hearts and rereading it. I was like, man, I should do like a volume by volume, uh, like commentary, uh, just as something to blog about once a week or something, um, because it's there's. I mean, we're we're an hour in, and I feel like there's still so many things we could talk about. Um, it's a busy series, and all the characters are great and have really good arcs for the most part. I think, um, and it, yeah, like you said, it really just it sucks you in. It's one that's a very easy binge. I'm so, I will never stop being angry that we didn't get a full adaptation in anime form. I was just about to say that, like, I, I, I am pretty happy with the adaptation we got. I felt like it was pretty good. But now I'm like, darn, I just want, like, a full adaptation just, you know, to introduce more people to it and just watch them cry as well. I want the full thing. 
and I want Bones to do it. Although I was thinking, okay, if it took 26 episodes for like eight volumes, this would be a really long anime, though. Oh, it would be for sure. Um, there's maybe some things you could kind of like truncate, but it would be difficult because there's so so many of the things that happen end up being important for later events. Uh, so you'd pretty much have to do the entire thing, and it would probably, you'd need maybe 70 episodes. I would probably a little a year. I don't know, Full Metal Alchemist was about 24 volumes, too, and they did it in, they did it in a year. They did it in 52. Yeah, 64. Yeah, they had to add an additional episode in at the very end. Yeah, that's true. I, I was following that series as it went along. It was going to be 63, and they're like, guess what, guys? 64 now. We need another episode. Yeah, they broke the core rule. They were like, it'll be done when it's done. <laughs> And that's what I want them to do with. I want Bones to take Pandora Hearts and do that to it. Um, just give me the full thing because, uh, again, they had a they had a great cast, and we just we just need the full story in anime form so more can get pulled into it. And I mean, there's a surprising amount of fighting in there as well, so Bones would make that look so great. <laughs> Bones, I think Bones would kill it um, because I've seen what they did with Full Metal Alchemist and Noragami, which are two series that I consider to be somewhat in kind of a similar vein. Um, so that's why they're my studio of choice for a Pandora Hearts reboot. Uh, I'll just keep shouting about it on Twitter and one day it'll happen, right? That's how that works. I mean, we're getting so many crazy reboots and remakes these days anyway, might as well hope. And Pandora Hearts is clearly one of the one of Young Press's bestsellers because they re-released it in that beautiful box, which I own. Um, I double dipped on this one, which is I never do. Um, they released the art book, all the light novels, um, so, I mean, it's, it clearly has done very well on this side as far as the manga goes. Um, and I, I would assume it's popular in Japan um, at the time. So maybe I'll keep my fingers crossed. You never know. Well, I'll be right there with you keeping my fingers crossed. Heck yeah. And I, I'm afraid that if we keep going, we're just going to keep on keep on going. So maybe we should cut things here for the moment, at least. Yeah, I'll, I'll t- I could talk about break for 30 minutes if you want. <laughs> so probably a good idea to, to stop now. So with that, I think we're at the end of the show, folks. Um, Dee, is there anywhere you want people to find you? I know you're at the top of the show. If you just want to remind anybody where else they can find you online and maybe get you to talk about break more. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, it's so the website's Joe Say Next Door. The Twitter handle is also at Joe Say Next Door. That is J-O-S-E-I Next Door. That's where I hang out. Like that's That's where I live. So come say hi. And you can find me and all of my late night yellings about how I should not be reading manga this close to bed on Twitter at Wandering Dreamer. You can find this podcast at Manga. Please feel free to suggest anyone else to cover in the future, since Corey April and I are always looking for more suggestions for manga. And if you want to hear me keep talking about manga, I do pretty regular weekly reviews over at the OASG. And I'm also the co-host on the podcast over there. It's not my fault the OASG podcast is not popular. Also, it's not my fault that's the title. That was before I came onto the show. (laughs) I was not involved in that one. That's hilarious. And with that, I will see you guys next week. And once again, Dee, thank you so much for coming here and just nerding out with me. Thanks for having me. Uh, I will talk about Pandora Hearts anytime. (laughs)